Welcome to the Retail Smarts Podcast. I'm Dominique Lamb, the CEO of the National Retail Association, and today we're incredibly proud um, to be speaking to Mary Aldred, who's the CEO of the Franchise Council Australia. Welcome, Mary. Um, it's so great to have you on our show and, and certainly to talk to you about all things um, franchise and industry body and just simply everything that's happening, I think, at the moment. Um, we've been very, very grateful to work alongside you throughout this entire what seems like the never-ending COVID-19 period. I know we kept talking about, you know, when COVID started and COVID still hasn't ended and here we are, um, but it's been wonderful working with you. And for all of our listeners, um, Mary and I and other associations have been advocating on behalf of businesses across the country around all things um, COVID-19, whether it be leasing and tenancy to stimulus packages and now, of course, uh, vaccine passports. Um, so, Mary, how did you come to work at the Franchise Council? Well, I have a little bit of a, an unorthodox um, kind of approach into industry groups. I, uh, I left school at 15, worked in my parents' small business, uh, appreciated how tough that really is running a, a small business. And so from there, went went to work in uh, government as an advisor uh, and then into the Energy Supply Association uh, which is now the Australian Energy Council, and I just really uh, understood um, how important industry groups can be to their member businesses. Uh, being able to, you know, stick your head up um, where individual businesses might not be able to on different issues, and I think, you know, just reflecting on how closely we've been able to work over these last eighteen months. There's that saying, you know, success has many parents, and I think um, what we've been able to do, FCA and NRA, and the other industry groups we've we've worked with, I think that's been a, a real strength to our arm, and and the benefit really has been there collectively for our member businesses in in working together on some of the issues that you've just listed. It's certainly been like screaming into a storm on many days. And, you know, I think that, you know, you would have experienced this. I mean, how do you manage having a large membership base with a myriad of problems that, you know, in your space range from anything from kind of fitness to food to traditional retail to, you know, even different forms of franchise with banner groups and all sorts of other complex um, matters. I mean, how do you prioritise all the things that your membership raise with you? a great point and I often think you know industry groups are not businesses but they should be run in a business-like manner so it's it's looking at being able to prioritize uh, really critical issues especially around as we've we've seen through this uh, period you know business sustainability business continuity literally discussions around entire business sectors getting shut down overnight because they're not included in a, a list of permitted businesses so being able to prioritize very clearly those issues um, and as you say, you know, uh, franchising, I like to say, you know, from hamburgers to hairdressing and, and finance to fitness. So lots of different industry sectors, but lots of different models of, of franchise businesses just within that sector as well. So that's been quite challenging at times. And I think that's where more so than ever before, just that um, capacity to bring other organisations together uh, to, to work with you and, and the NRA, particularly on those shared areas of common interest, um, to be able to really vocalise uh, strongly to, to government with one united voice, the, the absolute benefit has, has been there for our member businesses. And I, I think the, the proof's in the pudding and what we've been able to achieve with some really good outcomes through that time together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's, I mean, it's, it's still tough, right? Like, I mean, we're 
right now, you know, we're obviously working on watching New South Wales start to open up. And I think we're all waiting to see if, if the new premier is going to follow through and, and really, you know, open them up on Friday as he's promised. Um, you know, certainly the department's pushing back on that. I mean, for your members, how hard has this period been? I mean, obviously the verticals have different, you know, levels of difficulty and some people have done really well, but, you know, how do, what do you think the future looks like in terms of franchising in Australia? Yeah, very different to I think 10 years ago, very different to even two years ago. I think at a, a business level, um, we've got, you know, people that have qualified in a particular vocation and worked in aviation or, or tourism, and that's not going to come back as exactly as it, it was before. Um, and so we're getting a lot of interest from people that are saying, look, I'd, I'd be really interested in running my own small business, uh, taking charge of my own financial security, my own hours. So they're looking at things like mobile dog washes or, or retail businesses. Um, that coupled, I think, with population and demographic changes. So we're getting quite a big shift out of CBD areas, regional areas are really booming. Um, and that with it brings new opportunities. So I think we're seeing a shift there. Um, and also COVID has treated different businesses in, in different ways, right? So uh, if you're in freight logistics, um, that's gone absolutely gangbusters uh, in, a, in a lot of ways. But if you're in um, hospitality, uh, other parts of retail, that has been a really, really tough journey over the last year and a half or so. Um, and so uh, for us, being able to work with member businesses that Home, home handyman services. I've seen be able to pivot through lockdown to be able to go and work with some of your member businesses in, you know, installing Perspex glass behind counters to, to protect staff or working with Bunnings to do home deliveries. But not everybody, like our fitness members, not everybody can pivot to say an online class or a, a takeaway coffee. Um, and so they're, they're the businesses that we've, we've had to work particularly closely with and make sure that those messages on the ground are getting through to go government ministers. And if I have, say, around 400 member businesses, um, that's great. But teaming up with you and, and maximising the, the number of members that we're speaking on behalf of collectively, I think has been even more powerful in getting those messages across. Yeah. I mean, look, there's definitely no doubt that I think forming, you know, a, a coalition, um, you know, has been incredibly beneficial, certainly for our membership as, as well, because I think with that storm element, we, you know, where there are just so many people that have need and there are so many people trying to get the attention of government, you know, and whether it's via the media or whether it's internally politically amongst other things. I think that, you know, having that strength in numbers has been incredibly important, but also having, you know, different perspectives because it's almost as if, you know, you have to prove that if you're saying something and somebody else is saying it, you know, it's got more validity in kind of a space like this. I mean, I think naturally we tend to be, you know, and this, it might sound a little bit cliched, but as female leaders, we typically do tend to be more collaborative mm. um, as opposed to competitive in this space. I mean, what's your experience been like, I think, as a female CEO, you know, in the land of associations where there, you know, are very few of us? Absolutely. I think, you know, women are particularly collaborative in, in that space and there's some other um, terrific, you know, female CEOs and, and leaders in, in other industry sectors that provide some great models. And 
I always think you can you can talk a big game publicly and and champion equality uh, and and making sure diversity is represented. But what actually counts is is not a platitude around that in isolation, but how you walk that walk in your day job and in everything that you do every day. Um, how you treat people, the values that you live by, and and so I think um, you know doing that with respect and and purpose um, is is what really counts. And it's it's been you know I think also industry groups it's it's not like a, a Bunnings versus Masters or a David Jones versus Meyer where we're not in isolation um, you know competitive uh, commercial businesses we do actually need to be able to collaborate on on areas of common purpose like commercial leasing arrangements I mean it's been fantastic to be able to work with you on firstly getting up the national leasing code of conduct in in 2020 and then being able to get those codes re-established in Victoria and New South Wales. I don't think, I'm pretty sure we couldn't have done that by ourselves, but working with you and and Theo um, at the ACA and and other industry groups, that's been just fantastic to have that uh, united um, way of of going about our work. So I think, you know, doing things cohesively, doing things with purpose um, in a collective sense, but also living the values that you talk about um, every day is, is what really matters. It's, it's really, it's interesting, you know, because I think that journey, um, you know, for our listeners, particularly when you think about like the leasing code, um, when that was initially worked on, I mean, we had the Shopping Centre Council Australia in that. And of course, there's no way that we're going to agree with them, you know, on all things. And and I think that um, through this process, we've certainly all learnt, you know, almost a healthier way to interact with each other um, because we've just, we've all had to get a collective job done for the good of the ecosystem, which I think we all now accept is kind of everyone because we've all taken so many knocks through this period. You talk a lot about, um, you know, values and and walking those values. I mean, who are some of um, the mentors that you've had, um, you know, throughout your career that have kind of instilled that in you? It goes back to your point earlier, just around um, female leaders, and and I guess my response to that is there's some tremendous male leaders as well, but they are the ones that actually walk that talk in in how they go about their work, and so. Um, I started out in the Energy Supply Association when Brad Page was the, the CEO there. And I really, I was in a very junior role, but I, I looked at the way he he went about his role and I thought, wow, you know, if I ever got the opportunity to lead an industry group, that is how I would do it. The, mm-hmm. um, the absolute bone deep connection with your members, um, being able to understand all of the issues that they're, they're dealing with, um, understanding that every day our member businesses get out of bed, they have to do really well at what they do as a business to be able to justify that value proposition. Uh, it is it is not just uh, something frivolous that we should take for granted. So I think you know Brad was a, a really great uh, mentor and, and leader uh, in in that sense. I think Ines Willox at AIG um, is someone that I've I've followed for a long time, and I think again taking that bigger picture sense of purpose, bringing people along um, on a on a shared vision, uh, and being able to enable others uh, in your team. Um, to, to go out with a, a common purpose of, have been some of the things that have really resonated with me. It, it's interesting. I worked for Innes. So I came from Australian industry group um, before I eventually ended up at the National Retail Association. Um, and he has very reverent power about mm-hmm. him. Um, and I think the most exciting thing about him as a leader is just how 
um, informed he is. So he's very much you know in touch with that detail. He speaks for an incredibly broad membership group because I, I think, you know, they would be close to the largest, if not the largest mm. in comparison to Aki in Australia. So they represent a lot of people, but he's very considered in his approach. And, you know, we've been lucky enough to do a lot of industrial work alongside Australian industry group. And, um, you know, I think you're absolutely right about getting on with it, I think. Um, and, you know, having, you know, having a very kind of calm and, and reasonable leadership style, it really does go a long way. And I think that if I can just add on the, you know, Innes, Innes is very comfortable um, and, and reasonable in the positions that he takes. So he doesn't feel the need to be out in the media, you know, every single day on every issue. It's, it's a very deliberate um stance that he seems to take on positions of, of public policy interest to his members. And I, I think that's worth worth noting as well. Yeah, that's that's very true. I mean, I think, um, you know, it's funny because obviously, as you say, associations are for their members and they operate and they are in existence for the benefit of their members. And I think, you know, certainly here at the NRA, we do ask ourselves, you know, what would our members think? What would our members want? What do our members need? You know, and that's kind of where we come back to as a baseline every day, because at the end of the day, you've really got to work for your members. But I think, you know, and you would see this, it's broader than that too. It comes down to kind of industry as well. And as I said, that, that ecosystem, I mean, do you find managing that kind of membership and industry because I mean franchise is so diverse difficult to tackle sometimes it's a great question because and I'll answer it in two parts franchising I'm a a new entrant into so I had had worked in retail as a younger person but um not not in a a deep uh sort of franchise uh, sense um and so coming in three years ago I was on a very steep learning curve especially with the parliamentary inquiry which I think was announced two weeks before I started so that that was uh, a baptism of fire but what I noticed also was franchising is a really close-knit community other small businesses will ring up other small businesses and say, "Hey, I'm grappling with this issue. How would you how would you deal with this?" And um, there's a really strong sense of of support in that community. But the first part of your question around that ecosystem is, I think, very much at play in in industry groups at a, a national level, like an AIG, uh, or um, at a, a local level. Um, I, I got to uh, have the opportunity to start with the Committee for Gippsland, which was a, a new initiative for the region where it was about bringing all these different organisations together. And I've got to say, in the early days as a startup, sometimes just getting a sign painted or a fine line connected, you can chalk up to an achievement. But one of the things I really learned out of that, in addition to, you know, the absolute um, critical necessity of clarity of purpose and as you say you know what what do your members expect is also around relationships and contact so I started in that role you know over 10 years ago so 2011 and I built some great relationships and one of the um the relationships out of that was with Jala Pulford because she had she's a Victorian government minister who had agriculture and regional development. So we had a lot to do with each other in that role. And now, of course, she's small business minister. And so sometimes it swings and roundabouts. And I think, you know, being able to build a rapport with people that's based on on trust, on on a candidness. So where, you know, I'm not always going to agree with the Victorian government's uh, position on things and certainly have had some some pretty strong takes against the the way things have been handled in, in different ways over the last 18 months. But that has been a really important relationship in terms of where I'm sitting now because I can take issues to the minister 
um, in a candid and frank way. And, you know, there's lots of other connections that you make along the way and people will keep coming back to you as a trusted source of advice, I hope, um, if you treat them with respect and, and honesty and, again, live by those those values that you talk about. Absolutely. And, you know, you've mentioned the regions and obviously Gippsland. I mean, I think the region, you're quite passionate about the regions. I mean, where does that come from? Were you raised in the country? You know, where, where does your love for Australian regions um, come from? Yeah, so I, I grew up in a little town called Upper Beaconsfield, which was um, sort of the gateway to, to Gippsland a while back. Um, but I think, you know, I'm really passionate about regions for a number of, of reasons. In terms of Gippsland, I'm, I'm proud to, to come from a region, I like to say, that grows, makes, milks and manufactures things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we export um, things. We, we make things. That's where our food comes from, our furniture, um, our quality of life, our electricity, our water. And it's it's really important that it shouldn't be a city-country divide, but it is really important that across Australia, um, we do have an appreciation and an understanding about how those things are made and, and you know, how lucky we are to be able to access them so readily. And I think um, particularly when we're talking about resources, timber workers, um, you know, where we have a very high standard of, of doing things um, on a timber board in, in Gippsland, you know, you, you never want a, a, a referendum or a moratorium on, on regional jobs just decided in, in city communities. And, and so I think it's so important to have an open, honest, informed conversation around the, the social licence of, of continuing to, to make and grow uh, and process those products and services um, and, and that we do understand each other. So that's, yeah, I, I am very passionate about regional communities. But quite rightly, I mean, we've certainly seen throughout this pandemic and, and, and you've met um, our friends, the, the Snow you know, yes. Industry Association, and, and, you know, obviously it's quite shocking what they're dealing with mm-hmm. in the sense that, you know, we're talking tens of thousands of regional jobs just simply because they're a subset of retail that nobody's considered or has a unique experience. And, you know, I, I think that what people fail to realise, as you say, when decisions are made about jobs in cities for regional communities is that you can do serious long-term damage to a location if if you basically force its inhabitants to leave. I mean, mm. it's not just about the fact that, you know, we're not, you know, milking and making and, and doing those things anymore because there aren't any jobs, but you know, the, the creation of, you know, no first time jobs for kids because there's no retail, because, you know, we don't have the foot traffic for a main street or because we've got high levels of crime because there isn't anything for kids to do. You know, it's becoming such a significant issue, I think, across the country. And w- while it's good to see, I think, you know, m- people moving out of those major cities and moving into regions because now we've got this kind of work life balance and everyone's used to Zoom is one thing. But, I think there needs to be some real investment in those spaces, you know, not just, you know, so we can open more retail stores, of course, but just simply because, you know, these are communities and they're, they're living and breathing. And if, if we don't see that investment and activation, then they, they die, you know? Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I, and I imagine you see that in, in Gippsland. I mean, I'm sure there's been times where it's kind of ebbed, ebbed and flowed, right? Um, and it's about kind of making those ebbs and flows less, because I think, you know, right now, you know, they're either doing really well or they've been forgotten and that's really tough to watch. It is. And I love to say, you know, your postcode shouldn't determine your potential in life. 
And so that's why it's really important for education. You know, infrastructure is a primary enabler of productivity uh, and opportunity for people to be able to access work and study uh, and all of those sort of things. I think there's also, when we're talking about ecosystems, such an important relationship between that large quantum of, of heavy industry and employment in regions like timber mills or, you know, we've got um, your lawn power station in, in Gippsland that's going through a transition. Um, that alone is so important. We did a study at Committee for Gippsland a couple of years ago just with one power station in a region that contracted about 250 um, small business services. So you think the, the mm. local news agent that they would buy $5,000 or thereabout of newspapers, uh, the dry cleaners, the local sandwich shop for catering. Um, And so all of those sort of things are very dependent on being able to attract and maintain significant investment um, in in regional areas. And so whether it's Energy Australia or Federation University, Borough Foods, Paddy's Foods in East Gippsland that make four and 20 pies, all of those businesses are, are very, very important to how the rest of the community is able to uh, to travel and, and the quality of life that people in, in this region are able to maintain. Let's move it back to franchising for just a second. You know, that Senate inquiry was really hard on your mm. members. And I think before that, what was really even harder was probably the, the introduction of the Vulnerable Workers Act. Do you see Australia attracting more franchise businesses, you know, in the future? Do you think people will still want to come here given how difficult our regulation is, you know, not only at a federal level but now obviously at a state level and and I guess just the world watching what's happening in Australia at the moment because we were the darlings of COVID and obviously we're not right now. Um, I mean, how do you see that playing out in terms of getting more franchise opportunities for for mums and dads to buy into? Yeah, it's it's such a great question, and I think a couple of parts to it. So, I mean, I'm I'm still talking to international investors that are actively looking at Australia. You know, where where we have great proximity to Southeast Asia, skilled and available workforce, fantastic quality of life, all of the things. But we've got some really big challenges to make sure that that investment continues. So, part of that small business. You know, I think about 44% of the Australian workforce are employed in a small business, and out of COVID, small business is going to be such a critical vehicle on that pathway to economic recovery for people. So we've got to continue to drive that. Um, I, I do worry that in Australia, our, our national conversation around issues and problems that arise automatically pivots to more red tape, more regulation as our first answer, which is not always uh, an improvement on where things are at. Australia's probably got the most highly regulated franchising jurisdiction anywhere in the world. And yet, as we saw through that parliamentary inquiry, also a high level of complaints at at the time around behaviour and compliance. So you can't automatically say, well, just just introducing more regulation is going to fix everything. Um, What I learned out of that inquiry was that, you know, there were significant issues that we had to address as a sector and and listen very carefully also that there's two sides to a story um, and that not every story and example is exactly the same so some uh were you know very devastating stories others had a another side to that story which wasn't told 
as an industry organisation, we have reformed significantly so that to my earlier point around not more regulation is is always the answer, we now have a, a really comprehensive, you know, training and education platform that if you're looking at franchising as a sector, it can be fantastic, but due diligence is absolutely key as with any business that you'd look at entering into. So asking not just what are the upfront capital costs, but what are the ongoing costs of that running that business? Do you like dealing with customers? How comfortable are you managing staff? If you're looking at buying a bike shop, are you actually interested in cycling? What are the other third-party contracts that you might be entering into on commercial leasing, for example, suppliers, those sort of things? So um, making sure that you get you get expert advice, legal and financial advice at the outset is something we've been really strong on. Um, but I also think just working with our members at, at a, an industry-led um, level to provide some solutions to the, the very genuine issues that were posed through that inquiry has uh, has seen us, I think, streets ahead from from where we started. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and, and certainly I think, you know, there was a lot of noise around that Senate inquiry and there was a lot of damage to, you know, a whole myriad of brands. And I think, as you've said, you know, there, there are two sides in, in many mm. of cases and, and you guys have certainly been incredibly strong advocates about how do you pick a franchise? How to, do you decide if, you know, going into small business is right for you? Because I think, you know, it's a bit like that tree change or that yeah. seed change. People think, I know what I'll do. I'll get out of, you know, a big corporate business and I'll, I'll buy a cafe, mm. not realizing that that means they actually have to work in the cafe and that they might not actually like people. So, you know, I really enjoyed some of those tips because that's where I was headed. I was like, Mary, what are your top tips for <laughs> franchise? But you covered it anyway. It's so true though, because the yeah. number of people you would you would see the same stories. Oh, I want to buy a cafe, but I don't want to work on Saturdays. I want to play golf on Saturdays. Mm. Well, Saturdays might be your busiest trading period, and that's fine if you don't want to work Saturdays. But you're going to have to resource your time out of that business by paying you know someone to man the cafe and serve customers, and so that's going to you know impact on the overall profitability. And they're the things that people don't always work through at the outset. And I think, you know, for us, the one thing we're really big about it at the NRA is this financial literacy concept. Mm. And even though I think, you know, very worldly, well-read human beings decide to buy a cafe franchise, some of them don't realise how many cups of coffee it takes to pay their rent or pay a worker or even know where to look for what the right modern award is amongst other things. So, you know, it is quite a complex decision to make. And I think, you know, as an industry, we're very lucky that there's somewhere like you to go to um, at the Franchise Council just to look at all those things and to look at the kinds of support that's available and and to make sure you're making all of the right decisions or at least, you know, prompting your members to make sure that they're picking the right franchisees as well. That's that's so important. But, you know, sometimes something will hit you out of left field and, and someone will raise an issue with you uh, that you go, oh, I haven't, I haven't come across that one before. And that's when I get on the phone to you and say, hey, Dom, <laughs> have you come across this issue? And that, again, is why it's so great to, to have that collaborative working relationship with, between our organisations, I think. And I think, you know, I think as an industry, that should be encouraged because you can't be everywhere at once. I mean, at the end of the day, and and I think in times like this where you, it's almost like having landmines just go off, you know, in various parts of the country, you know, if you're focused heavily on one side and you're not looking to the others, sometimes you need eyes and ears in other places to make sure that your members don't miss anything as well. And, you know, and certainly we've really enjoyed our partnership um, with with you and, and certainly the Franchise Council. 
Um, and certainly our members, I think, are, you know, are very supportive of, of us working, you know, with as many associations as we can to make sure we get it right. Because I think it's just complex. I mean, you would see it right now. I mean, what do you think this is the hardest it's been, um, the New South Wales Victorian ACT lockdown, or do you think we're set to see harder? I'd hope not. But Oh, gosh, I hope not too. I think... Um, you know, last year was really tough, but it was it was like being hit by a big wave. There was that shock and all factor to it. And even though you know we'd had we'd had some tough times, people generally had financial reserves to get them through. I think this year's been tougher than last year because you know I like to say people are just running out of financial and mental reserves. They're they're running you know they they didn't have a profitable year last year um, in most cases, so they're really really running low financially, but also emotionally. The the toll um, that now you know getting on to two years nearly in in what February um, that is taking on people has just been astronomical. So I think we're going to see you know a lot of significant changes in in the way people do business cbds are you know i think uh um particularly for, for melbourne that's had the number uh and the, the longevity of, of lockdown um if you're a little coffee uh retail business at the base of one of those big commercial buildings that might be paying 100 grand a year in rent uh you're not going to have the same level of traffic foot traffic coming back so people come back to the office but they might come back three days a week we're doing some work with bernard salt at the moment who just does great work around demographics and um and sea change tree change um all of those things that you know we can we can glean some insight into as far as projected consumer behavior shopping behavior that businesses can hopefully then make some you know informed investment and planning decisions off the back of but it's it's really difficult because none of us have a, a crystal ball at the end of the day to to be able to get that absolute certainty which is what businesses want my my members are saying to me i just want the government to say if we're going to open on this date they are going to follow through with that and we we can we can plan ahead but it's a shifting of the goalpost that's just wearing people down you know as you mentioned that that kind of mental resilience being lower last time i mean i know certainly for our members that desperation element um, has kicked into a whole other gear with New South Wales being in lockdown for this long. How do you as a leader, you know, manage the weight of that? Because, you know, I know like myself and certainly our team at the moment, it's it's 24-7. It's seven days a week. It's very hard to take leave and the stories are getting worse. How do you look after yourself and your team at a time like this? It's a really, really good point. Uh, and I think, you know, we're, we're responsible for the well-being of, of our teams as well. You know, I've got a pretty small team and everybody is just working as hard as they can, um, trying to do everything um, they can, whether it's looking after our events through to our member comms to, to help our members get through. Um, I think a couple of things, like this morning, we actually had a webinar with, we've got a number of fitness brands. So we've been doing these um, webinars about once a month, just with a different franchise from a fitness brand taking us through it might be pilates at home mm. um, might be a workout at home just to do something different um 
we've been doing a couple of, I know people are over Zoom and drinks, but a couple of different types of webinars. So we had um, John McTiernan, who was Tony Blair's advisor, dial in um, from the, the UK just to talk about what that was like. Um, so changing things up a little bit, but on a, I think a day-to-day level, you know, making sure that you stick to a, a routine. So I like taking my, my dog for a walk in the morning, trying to get out, cycling a little bit, um, you know, reading podcast, listening to podcasts on some totally unrelated matter to get your, your mind away from it. Um, and I do think you need to be able to compartmentalize um, different issues at, at different times. Otherwise, we, 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 you know, we, we're both very passionate, I know, about doing every thing we can to, to help our member businesses but um, to be able to do that I think you've you've got to be able to compartmentalize things so what is your poison when it comes to podcasts this is this <laughs> getting personal <laughs> but really what are, you, what are you listening to oh look I must say murder podcast yeah true crime has been you know about the only thing worse than some of the, um, you know, terrible, uh, terrible um, situations that, that some of our members have had to face through COVID. So that's been um, totally different and uh, and a bit off the wall, but just uh, something else to, to get into. I, I um, am a um, an avid equestrian fan, so I loved the Olympics a couple of months ago. Great to see Andrew Hoy, you know, in his 60s, winning gold medals still. My friend Emma Booth was in the Paralympics, uh, so proud that, you know, she came fifth or sixth in in her dressage test. Um, and so I, I love, uh, you know, being able to, uh, to watch some international show jumping to, to get away from it. Fantastic. And where do you watch international show jumping when the Olympics isn't on? I'm just curious. <laughs> Do you have uh, a YouTube thing or? Yeah, there's heaps of YouTubes actually. If you don't have like uh, KO, KO, the um, sports tra- streaming channel, uh, YouTube can just, if you type in, you know, show jumping um, or even eventing, badminton, Hickstead, uh, show jumping that can be just a, a great series of 15 minute videos to watch it, uh, it's a good thing to to get your mind in a different space fantastic it's funny because our office um a lot of our directors also listen to true crime podcasts as well um so we it must be it must be a way of reminding ourselves that things can be worse than some of the days we've been having at the moment. Um, but for me, I listen to um, RuPaul. I, yeah, yeah I just love um, his insights into life. Um, and he has this podcast with Ms. Michelle Visage and they yeah. interview the most interesting people across the world about all sorts of things. Um, and, yeah, so I've, I've been kind of in that rabbit hole for some time um, and periodically, you know, pop in and out of a few other things. I was listening to when we could travel a few months ago on a domestic flight, I was listening to a a true crime podcast about, it was actually made into a documentary on the ABC about the last Indigenous tracker. Oh, wow. found a little girl in South Australia after three days who went Mm -hmm. missing on a farm and it was one of the most interesting podcast I've, I've heard in a very, very long time. Um, and it's a whole documentary to the point that even in the reenactments, they got his 
great great grandson to come and play him um and and the woman's still alive and it was the first time I think at 90 something she had spoken about her experience and she formed a spiritual connection with this tracker um because he said he could feel her and the elements and he knew where she was and she wasn't afraid because she was so used to all of the noises that he actually followed her by all the elements and then found her and they maintained this connection um, for the you know period of his life and hers. And he was paid by the South Australian police, which was quite rare. And it was mm. a a really mine like a minor payment, but this guy was doing the most incredible work and found lots of people in the space. Anyway, so that's that's my top tip for, <laughs> for podcasts. But I think that's probably all that we have time for today. And I've thoroughly enjoyed getting to know you better because we spent a lot of time on consultation. We do, we do. <laughs> Talking about all QR these QR codes. Yeah, but I never get to talk about all of the other things that I guess make you you. So it, it's been really lovely. Um, so thank you so much for coming on our podcast today. And, um, you know, we look forward to working with you through all of this chaos and and a time when we can actually travel and and hopefully see each other in person. Yeah, absolutely. I'll be able to tell you all about the Hawthorne football club next time. That's that's exactly (laughs) it. It's been great, Dom. And, and, you know, I really appreciate being able to work with you. I think the the success that we've been able to have on behalf of our members um, over the last, you know, as hard as it has been, um, those things that we've been able to, the little wins and the things we've been able to get over the line um, Mm. from my perspective have have been because we've been working with you in that that shared purpose and, and, you know, maximised um, ability to to influence and talk to decision makers. So thank you. Wonderful. Thank you. All right. Take care. Want to know more about the Australian retail industry? Visit nra.net.au for more insights just like these.